This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We received a news release from the Middlesex London Health Unit earlier today, and it talked about where things sit in terms of the university hospital outbreak. And they don't sit in a great spot. They really don't. And we said at the time, we need to have some context for this because the key line in this is that a total of 97 cases, 47 among staff and 50 among patients, and nine deaths have been linked directly to this outbreak with a number of additional related cases in the community. That's how it was termed. So that's how big it is right now. We heard from Dr. Chris Mackey last week. This is a two- to three-week thing, that this will play out in the next two to three weeks. This is kind of week one of that period of time. We're very lucky to have with us right now Dr. Adam Ducolo, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the London Health Sciences Center. Dr. Ducolo, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. Well, let's kind of look at those numbers. When you hear those numbers, what kind of things do you think about? Well, I think about uh, this is a situation that uh, we never wanted to be into uh, in the first place. Uh, COVID has, has uh, brought a lot of new uh, new normals and new things to to healthcare, but obviously well beyond healthcare. Um, and we've planned uh, for a number of different scenarios. Uh, and we've done our very best to be available to our community uh, at all times, and I think we've done we have done a good job of that. Having an internal outbreak was on the radar, but not something that uh, that we that we planned to have to respond to. That being said, I think uh, in working with our health unit colleagues, uh, we're we're doing uh, our best job to respond at this point in time and prevent any further any further spread. When we go back to Monday, you were a part of the City of London and Middlesex London Health Unit briefing, and you'd mentioned that you wish we could have been able to be more supportive earlier on and, and maybe catch this earlier. If we're looking back, and I know hindsight's a powerful thing and, and it's kind of an easy thing, but what should the health unit and London Health Sciences Centre have done differently? It's a that's a great question, Mike. And, and even this morning, uh, during our morning briefing with our internal team, one of our infection control practitioners was going over uh, what's called a histogram. It's kind of a run chart of when the cases uh, cropped up. And there's a, a key window where we went from just a few cases to uh, to a number of cases. And I don't have the dates in front of me. Um, and it was at that point in time that uh, we realized that this was more than sort of your normal outbreak. We've had other outbreaks of COVID internally, and, and lots of hospitals across the province have had uh, smaller outbreaks than we're having currently. Um, and so um, we... Uh, the retrospectoscope. Uh, what I would what I would respond to that with is we further increased on late last week our um, IPAC practices and uh, things like uh, um, work quarantine and increased testing. We you know testing every staff uh, and doctor that's uh, been at UH uh, and, pa- and and seen patients since uh, November 17th over the weekend. So strategies like that that we've now put in place in the past four or five days, um, sort of the wish is that we, we, would have, uh, we would have been able to do that earlier. Um, but at the same time, uh, we, we responded in that way as soon as the signal uh, suggested that, uh, that, that we needed to. 
there was talk of the visitor policy being changed. And when we hear that, we're not really familiar with what the visitor policy is. It, it was changed on the 27th, which, if I'm doing the math, is you know, 16, 17 days after the outbreak was, was first known about. Can you take us through changing the visitor policy and, and why it was done then? For sure, and it actually relates back to my response to the last question. When this went from a a unit, a single unit being on outbreak, uh, which we respond to on a regular basis, um, whether it's COVID or other infectious organisms, uh, to being on multiple units. And visitors, uh, and, and, you know, for the most part, people visiting patients in hospital, it's not like 15, 20 years ago uh, where it is truly a visit, uh, you know, dropping off some magazines. Uh, It's actually people who are helping care uh, for the inpatient, uh, the person that's in the hospital, um, both uh, both physically and emotionally. So we don't we do not take it lightly uh, when we have to restrict visitors and essentially uh, caregivers uh, from coming into the institution. So all of these decisions are made, uh, you know, with great uh, great careful consideration for the impact uh, on on patients and their families and the, and the visitors and caregivers. Um, but also with the effort to to, to stop the spread. Um, so the, the 27th relates to sort of exactly what I was talking about late last week uh, when we realized that the, the size of the outbreak was increasing, that we needed to, to double down on the efforts. We're talking with Dr. Adam Ducolo, who's the Chief Medical Officer for the London Health Sciences Centre. We had mentioned the numbers in the release that came out from the Middlesex London Health Unit earlier today. The 97 cases, 47 among staff, 50 among patients. We have, sadly, nine deaths that have been linked directly to the outbreak. And then there is termed a, a number of additional related cases in the community. Do we have an exact number on, on how many total cases there are? So that that number, as you can imagine, changes uh, as the day goes on. Um, and to have the the total number of cases, it's a health unit uh, would have the best uh, sort of best numbers on that. We ha- we have to focus on our inpatients and our uh, our staff and and physicians that have unfortunately contracted the virus. But you know, my colleagues Chris Mackey, Alex Summers, and their team uh, would have the the total numbers at hand, and I I, I believe update their website on a regular basis. Right. One more thing, and that is you were asked about the potluck on Monday and said that at this point it remains a rumor. What's changed between Monday and now with regard to looking into that? Well, we are actively looking into it. The first that uh, our team, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, our team had heard that that was a, even a rumor was earlier on Monday. Um, and, uh, and as soon as uh, we were alerted to that, started uh, a line of investigation. Similarly, our colleagues at the health unit are also uh, investigating it, but we have no further information to, to confirm uh, that there that was a potluck at, uh, at any point in time that, that would be related to the outbreak, but are actively investigating it. Okay, so talking to staff members and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, yes, every, every, every person um, that ends up a positive for COVID goes through contact tracing. Um, and as part of that contact tracing investigation, um, uh, hopefully people have seen some of the very, uh, the excellent maps that even our health unit has published on the website before, um, links back to events like that. Um, and so as part of that, you would uncover, um, you know, if five or 10 or 15 people got infected at an individual event. How long does it take to typically go through contact tracing like that? 
So if you only have a couple people to do contact tracing with, uh, again, the, the health unit will be experts in this, but if you're only doing it for a few people, it can be done in a matter of a few days. But when we're talking about the numbers that, that you've, you've quoted or cited, uh, which are obviously quite high, it takes a lot longer. Um, because you can imagine if you had to retrace your steps uh, for the past number of days uh, to sort through that, and then you've got to link the case from three weeks ago with the case from two weeks ago with the case from last week kind of thing. So it is quite a complicated process, and I don't pretend at all to be an expert in contact tracing, um, but the more you're doing at the same time, like anything, the longer it takes. Typically, we have seen these things trace back to a super spreader event. Is there thought that, you know, ultimately that that has to be what created this? Not necessarily has to be. Um, you know, I, I certainly, uh, I'd love to have sort of that an- black and white answer as to what uh, what happened to create the outbreak. Um, but given the, um, the what, you know, given what we have in terms of the number of people that work in our institution, uh, the the shifts they that people work and the mobility of those individuals, uh, there may not be a specific event. Um, and it may be related to a number of much smaller uh, one to one, one person to one person. Um, uh, transmissions of COVID, but we will, uh, you know, everyone's doing their best to find out what the what the nature is. Dr. Ducolo, is it is it a case, and we heard Dr. Mackey kind of point to this before, where you just get comfortable, you get comfortable working with people and seeing them on a regular basis, and and that sort of thing can be great until it's not. So. COVID is a terrible illness, um, and we even know those that get symptomatic or asymptomatic for a couple of days before. Um, so I'm, I'm 100% confident that none of our staff uh, or team members uh, were working well, well sick. Um, however, uh, when you've been battling a, uh, when you've been battling this, this virus and wearing, you know, lots of PPE for many, many months now, there's no question uh, that fatigue uh, can play into it. Um, and, uh, you know, being, being in the hospital for 12 to, to you know, sometimes 16, 20 hours or longer at a time, um, you could, there may be slippages in that and, and uh, some, some um, I'll call them mistakes, uh, in PPE with your goggles or your masking or your gloves or your gown and all the other things that we have to do. Um, hence the reason that over the past number of days we've put in uh, double down on our efforts and we have, thing, we have items like auditors uh, going to every ward three times uh, a day and three times a night uh, just to help remind people if, if there are any, uh, any people that are getting fatigued uh, in the moment um, and to, to try and uh, to, to, to improve our, our ability to protect each other, protect our patients and protect our community. Well, Dr. Duclo, we really appreciate your time and your answers and the context you've provided. Please stay safe, and here's hoping that this comes to an end soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the time, uh, Mike, and uh, best wishes to you, and, and stay safe as well. Take care. That's Dr. Dr. Adam Duclo, Chief Medical Officer for the London Health Sciences Centre, and there are some pretty candid answers. This is what's happening. This is what's going on, and now it, it's just a matter of, Wishing that you'd done more earlier, sure. I mean, and he admitted that's exactly what you're, what you're going to look back and say, and that's that's what any of us would say. And the hope is that we do not see this spread further, and that the big part in all of this, as we emphasized earlier, that we learn from it. That maybe we can pinpoint this to 
a couple of activities or one super spreader event. Nothing's been mentioned yet as they continue to go through contact tracing. Nothing's been mentioned that we can say is concrete, and yes, that was the reason. But it's just about learning from it and saying, okay, if that happened at that hospital over there, that can happen at that workplace over there like that. So here's how to prevent it. Because we're still in that. We're still in the tunnel. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's coming. We're still in the tunnel. Let's talk about how the federal government has handled this. The strategy to buy vaccines, to purchase PPE, personal protective equipment. David Aiken of Global News has done a fantastic job looking into this, and we're lucky enough to have him with us right now. David, thanks so much for being here. Oh, happy to be in the program, and thanks, thanks for the compliment. I appreciate it. Well, you really have. I mean, we had a little something created, or maybe it wasn't created. The, the Public Services and Procurement Canada, is that something that, that's been around yeah, yeah, for a yeah, while? So- so this, this is a department nobody ever hears of, except, of course, like in times of a crisis. So, you know, when the federal government buys something, they buy a lot of stuff. I mean, they buy, you know, they buy fighter jets for the Air Force, they buy paper clips for everybody else, and they buy everything in between. So the, there's a federal government department that its only job is to buy stuff on behalf of the federal government. And obviously, when you're the federal government, you can command a pretty good price for, let's say, paper clips if you're buying a gazillion for the 250000 public servants. So when this crisis hit, though, it's a government department. That's the important thing to know, right? So that means bureaucracy and things generally move kind of slow. And here's another important thing that, I, that we shouldn't make fun of, is a lot of businesses in Canada want to do business with the government. It's a good customer, pays on time, it's generally going to make sure there's, there's work there. And so the rules for the federal government to buy stuff means if it wants paper clips, it's going to say, put out a tender. Uh, we need a bunch of paper clips. Who's got the best price? And, you know, you can go ahead and bid on that if you're in the paper, paper uh, clip making business. But when this pandemic hit, obviously the thing that was needed back in March was speed. And so what the government did, it gave itself some special powers to engage into contracts that were extraordinary. In an emergency, the, the public works department can, can would normally would be able to say, you know, I need beds and blankets or whatever, it's an emergency, and can do that without a competitive bid, without oversight, up to $1.5 million, $15 million. But for this pandemic, it got extraordinary authority, as we found out, up to $500 million. And it's been using that on everything from sole source contracts to have, say, Air Canada fly stuff from China, um, And that was controversial because, you know, WestJet wanted that contract, too. WestJet would have bid, but it didn't get the chance on everything from that to buying masks from manufacturers. But here's the thing on vaccines. It gave itself unlimited authority to go into the vaccine market and start buying up vaccines. The good side of that is that you probably heard from any number of government officials It has got a, quote, portfolio of vaccine contracts, seven vaccine manufacturers, and if every one of them delivered a vaccine to us, we'd have like 400 million doses. The downside is, and this is the issue that's right now, literally right now about to happen in Parliament is, they have not, the government has not told us the details on delivery of these vaccines. And I know you've been saying on the news that, you know, Britain, the U.K. has got their first approval. They'll be vaccinating next week. Uh, the United States is going to get approvals probably in the middle of December. They'll be vaccinating a couple of days later. And the best answer we can get out of our government 
is when the approvals happen, if the approvals happen for the first vaccine out of the gate, sometime in the first quarter. And and that's been a big issue for, uh, say, the provincial government, who which needs to know, right, are we getting doses in the first week of January or the second week of February? Because wherever we're getting them, we need to know we've got to have freezers, we've got to have people who are give, them, give the shots. We're, who's getting lined up? Is it going to be uh, people in, in long-term care facilities, healthcare workers? Lots of questions. So this contracting authority has been really interesting to look into, but it's got real-world implications for when are we getting the vaccines. And it's been pretty tough, I tell you, to try to get a straight answer from the government on that front. We are talking with David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, and we're looking at certainly the department that we're learning a lot more about, the Public Services and Procurement Canada, the PSPC PSPC. department. The PSPC. Is there... Is there somebody at least running the PSPC that has a lot of experience and and we can rely on? Uh, that is a sort of that that will we'll have to find out after the fact. Sometimes this has been a graveyard for politicians. Sometimes people have run it well. So there's two key people here. There's the politician who's running it, and her name is Anita Anand, Minister Anand. Anita Anand, she's an MP from Oakville, just up the road. And uh, this is her, she'd never been a politician before she got this job. She had no experience ever working in government. And here you've got the job, you're going to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars buying stuff on behalf of the government. And Nan, though, her background was as a law professor, and she worked in corporate law. She's got a lot of experience, she says, in corporate law. Uh, She was at the University of Toronto and at their law school, teaching before she went into politics. But she's only been in politics since November. So there's, you know, might be, there could be both good and bad. Not having political experience, sometimes that's a good thing. Uh, in any event, the deputy minister, right, this is the top bureaucrat in charge of the department. His name's Bill Matthews. He's been around forever in Ottawa, knows his way around. And by and large, uh, because there's been no bad news coming out of public services and procurement Canada, that's usually good news for the deputy minister. They don't want to make news. They just want to buy stuff. But, as it, but Anand has been right, you know, thrust basically right into the center of the government's crisis response team, along with Health Minister Patty Hydu and the Public Safety Minister Bill Blair, all these folks. This is this is the crisis response team because I mean one of the biggest issues have been buying stuff for our hospitals, for our frontline healthcare workers, and not a lot of people know that the the stuff that Ontario, the government of Ontario, is using, or hospitals in London are using. That's bought by the federal government. The federal government immediately took over and said, we're going to be the, the single procurement agency for the entire country, and that's PPE to everything. And the, gov- the federal government has bought something, I don't know, like $2 billion worth of uh, PPE. And so in addition to buying it, now you've got to distribute it, and you've got to distribute it on an equitable basis so that Ontario is not grumbling about what Alberta is getting and Alberta is not grumbling about what you know, Nova Scotia is getting. And that has been that has been a tricky and a challenging job. And so far, on the PPE front, you know, there's been there have been some hiccups. Okay, it's the vaccine one that is really going to test this system. Once we start approving a vaccine and start getting the vaccines in the system, and I suppose we're not really going to know how it all plays out until it plays out. Until it plays out, yeah. And I can't understand why we can't get more of a clear answer. For instance, if the government, it must be in the contract. You would think, say, with Pfizer. 
we, w- we want, you know, X number of million doses within, say, a week of us approving the vaccine. But our government won't even say that. They won't tell us the conditions on which Pfizer is to deliver. And I should point out, Canada will have some conditions. Pfizer is the first one out of the gate, you probably know. And Pfizer is the one where this vaccine, it's like it's a high-tech vaccine. It needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius. And that means you need, you need specialized freezers, but you need very highly trained people to make sure this thing doesn't spoil once you thaw it out. You've got to apparently get this in somebody's arm within a, you know, 24 hours once it comes out of the freezer. And that means that you need some training. You need some very specialized facilities. And so Pfizer probably doesn't, it's probably in the contracts for Pfizer to say, we're not giving it until you can demonstrate that you have that system in place because they don't want their vaccine to be manufactured and then it just, you know, melts, rots. So, again, those contract details, this is the power the government gave itself. They don't have to tell us. They don't have to put it before Parliament. We just have to trust them and let's hope that they make good on their word and we see a vaccine early in the new year. But, again, Canadians are going to watch Americans and the Brits get needles in the arm before any Canadian does. Yeah, that's going to be hard to watch for sure, and it's already on track in the U.K. to be happening very soon. 2020 really is the year where nothing feels easy, isn't it? David, thank you so much for the update on this. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. Really appreciate it. That's David Aiken. David is the chief political correspondent with Global News. So looking at Canada going out and, and okay, we need this, we need this, we need this, as he says, it's worked out okay for the federal government to be running the stocks of PPE, even though maybe Air Canada got some extra contracts in transporting some of that. But what happens with vaccines? And it is going to be the demand, because PPE is one thing, but PPE doesn't affect absolutely everybody. Do you have an N95 mask? I don't have an N95 mask. I hardly know people who have N95 masks. Do you wear gloves on a regular basis? I don't wear gloves on a regular basis. I hardly know people who wear gloves on a regular basis. So the PPE goes to certain specialized roles. The vaccine's got to go to everybody. Let's take a COVID break, and let's look at something else that happens in the city that I'm actually, I'm, I don't want to say surprised, but I am. But I shouldn't be naively surprised can i be that because i would always look at using other forms of transportation in a city like london as being "Mm, that's not going to work you know it's nice that some people do it and they cut down on the congestion of vehicles that's not going to work london's too spread out you you have to drive from one end to the other We, we don't have the infrastructure and the way to do things by way of transit there are bus stops that you can get onto and thank you to everybody who does this but in order to get from one place to where you want to go that's a hefty trip and you're going in it's like getting on a school bus and this is not anything against london transit but it is it's like getting on a school bus you're going to have to go places that you didn't want to have to go in order to get to the place that you want to go and that's just the way that routes have worked. Now, we've had different routes added on, but depending where you live, that's just a reality. So I never looked at this and was able to say, yeah, this is going to work. I remember having a discussion with Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer 
about a family of four. How do you not have a vehicle as a family of four? How do you get to the grocery store? How do you get to events and things on time? We talked with Nancy McCreary last week, and she is someone who writes a blog as Car Free Mama and has gone car free with the family. And so far, it has been working. The winter has just begun, but so far, it's been working. Let's get a sample of what life is like as someone who rides a bike to where they need to go on a regular basis. Joining us right now is someone who does that, Andrew Hunniford, and we really appreciate the time. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's kind of look at the situation in London, because yesterday we did hear from the city itself, and they were kind of looking over how things have gone in the way of cycling traffic over the last decade, that we've seen a really marked increase. I think the number that they used was more than 50%. As someone who makes use of a bicycle to get places, how's London doing? Are, are we better? Are we improving? Yeah, it's encouraging to see those numbers reflected, right? But really what you have to acknowledge is they're just a larger global and national trend that we're experiencing. Cycling is up like all over the place. And when something like that comes out, I'm always, you know, positive about the numbers. And then I watch to see city officials kind of race to say, hey, look, we're making investments and it's producing results. When you're like, not really, we're kind of succeeding in spite of our best efforts. Succeeding in spite of our best, I love this, you know, because that yeah. sort of thing can happen. And we've got to kind of play a role of watching out when that is the case. If we're seeing cycling up absolutely everywhere and we're kind of joining in the party, we're not on an island, even though, hey, we might like to believe that things are getting better. Give us kind of the challenges in London right now if you have a bike, because we all know the dedicated lanes have been put in on King Street and we're seeing pathways connected and there seems to be a lot of positive happening. But if you were to wave a, a big old magic wand and, and make some changes, what would you start with? You need a, a minimum viable system. Like that's what we lack right now is something that's a cohesive system that actually serves a purpose. Right. So if we're, you know, myself, if I'm this use case or this actor, this story that has to accomplish something, right? And the city of London is the system that I have to do that in. If I got to go from, you know, my home to work, like, does the cycling infrastructure enable me to do that? No. I've probably come up with a number of individual systems that kind of bridge the gap. So it's like I could ride, for instance, you know, uh, east on Ferndale. But I can't ride west, right? So, you know, this system isn't really actually getting me to and from work. Along some of the way, it maybe improves my experience, but it's not really the driving factor. It motivated myself. And then you start, you know, picking up behaviors or safety equipment and things like that, where now you're implementing your own individual system in order to accomplish your goal. Versus if you were a driver with a car, it's all there, right? Like the road network is a completed, interconnected system that you can use without experiencing anything unexpected. Right. So now you're implementing and incorporating systems that some are there by way of the city, and you're kind of creating others to keep yourself safe and give yourself the most direct route? 
Yeah, you're you're trying to solve problems. So it's the way that, it, like, the conversation right now in the city is about, you know, for example, there's a proposal to say, let's take this uh, this federal money and, and build ourselves, you know, a minimum viable product. Let's use this to accomplish what is the most important goal in interconnected systems. The price is what you pay for something and value is what you get. It kind of broke down because the argument then started to follow price. And people would say, yeah, but if we split this up like we've always been doing and we stretch it out again over another couple of years and we approach the individual pieces, we'll save price. But if you haven't actually built a system that functions, you've got no value out of it. So you're paying less money, sure. But now you're getting nothing in return. Are you really saving money? <laughs> I like that. We're talking with Andrew Hunniford. And we're getting a picture of life as someone who is cycling to work, cycling to different locations on a fairly regular basis. Has there ever been a time when you've either arrived at work or arrived home and you've said, all right, that does it. I'm, I'm done. This isn't working anymore. Or is it manageable? It, it's really a catch-22 because uh, at times cycling and the frustration those experiences have negative impacts on my mental health. Cycling is also how I treat my mental health effectively. Um, I still find that my overall experience is more positive than negative. It's so positive that I still absolutely encourage people, even within our current state or infrastructure, to start cycling tomorrow. Because that's going to get us to a better state. And, yeah, there's obviously problems and dangers and all of those things. That happens all of the time, right? I think I post videos, right? There's a video on the Internet right now of me coming home to see my family, and I'm going up a ride out across commissioners, an area where the cycling infrastructure disappears, right? As you approach the intersection, the area that you need it most, it turns into a sharrow, which is an arrow painted on the ground. You're supposed to go single file. This creates all this conflict, this animosity, right? Like people get mad at cyclists for not following the rules. But here I am, you know, I've occupied the space that I'm supposed to be in. I'm about to follow these strict rules that all automobile drivers want me to adhere to. And what happens, it's on video, if a car intentionally comes over and hits me on purpose with this side mirror. Um, you get this type of behavior all the time, right? Like this hostility to just existing or trying to do these things. And then the arguments against cyclists at the same time are also, yeah, but one time I saw one run a stop sign. Like, I got a high-definition video of somebody, like, intentionally hitting me with their car so they can get to a stop sign faster than me. And you know what? We're going to talk in just a few minutes about driving and safe driving. How much of it does come down to the idea that for many, many years – we didn't have to share the road with cyclists, maybe to the extent, certainly in, in a city, that you have to share it with cyclists now. And drivers have just gone, hey, where, where's this coming from all of a sudden? You know, and now I've got to follow these different rules. Now if I'm going across a bridge, I've got to wait for a cyclist to go by. We never add things up as drivers where you don't realize that you zooming to that stoplight saved you one and a half seconds or you passing somebody in a dangerous way might have saved you eight seconds on where you are going. We never quite realize that. How much of this maybe doesn't go pointing at the city but goes pointing at all of us who live within the borders? 
We've been building to these things, right? It's, you know, we talk about it. We incentivize things like traffic flow and improved speed, right? And then we wonder why drivers get mad when they're or you're perceived to be impeding them, right? It, it's, it's this notion that you're going to be able to get to this point where you improve traffic flow to where driving becomes more efficient. It just doesn't exist. Like, induced demand is... It's just a fact. It's a thing that happens. The more we improve conditions for driving, the more people drive, and you just have to keep chasing that dragon, and it just never stops. It's like loosening your belt in order to try and start losing weight, right? (laughs) Um, Ain't going to happen. That is a perfect analogy for it. One final question. We're talking with Andrew Hunterford about cycling in the city of London, because when you want to know about something, you go to the source, and Andrew does this on a very regular basis, posts videos, lets us know what is happening, what it's like. We've seen lanes that have been put up on Colburn, on King, although King is kind of going to be redone for bus rapid transit at some point, but we've seen those dedicated cycling lanes are those the way to go in your estimation? Do we need more of those to make a better cycling experience? Yeah, everybody, drivers, pedestrians, cyclists, we all want the same thing. We, we just want an equal opportunity to move ourselves about the city the best way that serves our needs and without conflict. You can't put uh, something that's capable of, you know, accelerating to 60 kilometers an hour in seconds that has 700 horsepower and expect it to share a system, you know, with, with me, I weigh 180 pounds kind of thing. Um, and you know, I'm made of pink squishy material and essentially a, a giant water balloon, right? Um, it, they're just false equivalencies. And this idea that, you know, for like the hundredth year in a row, we've been trying to educate drivers on like, drive according to the conditions and safely. And you're like, that's time. It's really going to stick. The message is going to land. You're like, no, the solution is just separating out these false equivalencies into their own dedicated pieces of infrastructure. It benefits literally everybody. It reduces the conflict for the driver. It makes their driving easier and safer and less frustrating. It's better for the cyclist. And the pedestrian even benefits because of that additional buffer space that's put in between. All these things come together to benefit ultimately neighborhoods and communities. They calm traffic, which just has an overwhelming positive experience on the people that actually live within these areas. Well, here's hoping that we continue to build toward that because it'll help everybody. It reduces congestion, and if we can make it safer, let's get on it. Andrew, thank you so much for the description. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Andrew Hunterford. Joining us on London Live. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.